0: Music has always been an important part of my life. Okay, I grew up in a family uh, where we listened to music constantly, um, and there was always a record playing, no matter what the occasion was. So, music has always been an important constant in my life. Now, the first instrument that I learned how to play, uh, that I really pursued and put myself into, uh, was the trumpet. Uh, I was in the fifth grade. And I thought that it would be fun to play an instrument and be in the school band. Um, So I begged my parents for a trumpet. And uh, eventually they gave in and they bought me a trumpet. And they played trumpet in the school bands through the elementary school and through junior high. Um, Now, I wouldn't say that I was uh, especially good at it. Um, If any of you have ever been in an orchestra-type band, uh, you might remember that there are uh, positions within your instrument section okay, Um, that's generally corresponding to how good of a player that you are. Um, For instance, if you were good, uh, you would be placed in the first chair, okay, of your section. And if you were one of the best players on your instrument, you would be in the first section and have the first chair, right? So you would have first trumpet, first chair, second chair, and so on, and then you would have second trumpet, first chair, and so on and so on and so on, okay, and it would progress down from there, okay? Now, I wasn't very good, Okay, So I was like third trumpet, third or fourth chair, somewhere around there. Um, I was like the 11th or 12th worst trumpet player in my school. Right? Um, now some of the reason why I wasn't very good is because I didn't practice. right? And I really didn't have a desire to either. Uh, so I wasn't very good. Um, but now um, we come to the 8th grade, in the middle of the 8th grade, uh, the school band needed someone on a different instrument the tuba. And guess who got picked to play the tuba? And so I was moved to the to- out of the trumpets and into the tuba. And uh, it didn't exactly feel like an upgrade, right? Okay? In fact, it felt more like a sentence. Uh, it felt like a punishment for not uh, excelling on the, the trumpet. I'm going to sentence you now to five months on the tuba. Now, the tuba, it's a huge instrument. It's, it's very big. It's, it's cumbersome, and it's heavy, and it's impossible to get on the bus with, all right? I mean, it takes up its own seat, it's, and, I, and I just really despised it. Um, so um, I didn't practice it either. <laughs> so as you can imagine, I was terrible on the tuba as well. Uh, I just had no desire to pursue it, um, I just, I just could not uh, take any joy or delight in it. And I think this is what uh, eventually led me uh, to dropping out of band completely in the ninth grade. Um, so when I became a freshman in high school, uh, I couldn't see myself going any further in school band other than perhaps the storage closet. So uh, during the ninth grade, uh, I didn't play an instrument at all. Um, I lost all desire to do so. Now, all that changed when I... Was 15 years old. Um, during the same freshman year, my brother had received a guitar for Christmas. And, and my brother, at the time, he was attending college out of state, and so he took his guitar back with him to college. And about five months later, he came back uh, home from school and he could play all of these songs on it. And I was impressed that it only took five months uh, for him to play all these cool songs. Um, and there were popular songs that I recognized. Um, So, I took uh, from his encouragement, uh, and I began learning how to play the guitar, right? And I fell in love with it. It was so much different than the trumpet or the tuba. It was more difficult at the beginning, for sure, but I enjoyed it. And as my enjoyment continued, my desire to learn as much as I could grew. And as I learned more and got better on the instrument, it really started to become a delight to me so much that I poured all of my time into it. I would think about it all the time. It became my joy. Now, I think the key difference between my experience uh, with the guitar versus on the trumpet and the tuba um, was that I had a genuine interest and a desire to pursue it. And I would practice it, and I would pour myself into it, and the more I learned, the more I took enjoyment in playing it which means that I got better at it. And it was a huge confidence booster for me. I took safety and security in it. it became something for me that provided an escape from some of the, the awkward social nuances of growing up, right? Now, when we find things like this, like my experience that I'm telling you on the guitar or any hobby that uh, we fall in love with, we tend to pursue those things aggressively, We tend to fall into a natural relationship with those things, and it looks like this. We prioritize our time with them. We nurture a desire to learn more about them. And then as we increase in our time and understanding, it grows, and it leads us to delighting in it. We do this with our personal relationships, too. Just think about uh, the friendships and the relationships uh, that you've delighted in. Uh, When we we meet someone, uh, a spark occurs that piques our interest in them. Uh, But it's not until we start prioritizing our time with them that we still really start to get to know them and we develop a relationship with them that's meaningful. And the more that we invest in that relationship, the deeper we get to know them. And the deeper that relationship becomes and we begin to delight in that relationship. Now, this is especially true in our relationship with God. As we pursue him once we see our need for him, the deeper that relationship becomes. The more we learn of who he is and how he exhibits his love for us, the desire to pursue him grows. And as that desire grows uh, in us to devotion to him, he becomes our delight. Now last week we began working our way through Psalm 63. And we began exploring how Psalm 63 uh, is an example of thirsting with joy in our relationship with God. And we dove into that by focusing on how our need for God drives our desire to have a relationship with him. Now, I want to take a brief moment and refresh our minds, and also, for some of you who weren't here last week, so that we can uh, pick up in the flow of where we are going with Psalm uh, 63. So if you haven't already, would you please turn in your Bibles uh, to Psalm 63? And as you're finding your way to Psalm 63, let me give you a quick reminder of the nature and the purpose of the Psalms. Um, We talked about how the Psalms were unique in that they were the praises and laments and prayers of God's people upward to God. All of the scripture is God delivering his word downward to us. The Psalms are from us to God. Now, this doesn't change the inspiration of the word of God. It's just in the orientation. It just gives us a blueprint in how God's people are to respond to him. And the Psalms are emotional in the the way that they uh, convey our love and our devotion and express our hearts to God. And they do this in a variety of ways. Um, But then we began talking uh, about Psalm 63 itself. And Psalm 63 is a a psalm written by King David. And it was most likely written during the time when David had fled uh, into the wilderness or the desert uh, when his son Absalom attempted to divide Israel and take the throne away from him. And so the desert becomes part of the inspiration in the setting for the psalm. David is looking out into the vast, dry, lifeless wilderness and it's reminding him how lifeless and dry his soul would be without a loving relationship with God. And so the desert becomes an analogy to spiritual deadness and how we must desire and come to God thirsting and fainting after him as if our very life sustenance depends on it. And David begins the psalm with an emphatic yet humble declaration of his relationship with God. We read this in the opening in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. And this is to convey that the relationship, this relationship that he has is based on who God is as the covenant God of Israel. It is the God who makes covenant with David and his people. And as we talked about this reality of who God is and the basis of what drives this is really what all the other psalms are about as well. He is the God who keeps us in the shadow of his wing. He is the one who upholds us by his right hand. And now because of the reality of this relationship with God as his savior, David understands his need for God and this drives David's desire to seek him with all of his being. We read again in verse one, would you look at it with me? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My th- my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David has a desire, a drive to seek after God with his whole being. David's need for God is thirsting and fainting for him, fuels his desire to run to him diligently and eagerly, knowing that his very life depends on it. Just as if we were out in the dry, lifeless desert and he was dying. So this is showing us how our need for God fuels our desire for him. But not only our desire to seek him in personal devotions, uh, but also a desire to seek him in corporate worship. We also looked at verse 2. Look with me again. This is verse 2. It says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. This was David remembering his time worshiping with God's people and seeing his blessings poured out on them. And so David's desire for God extended also into worshiping with God's people. And then finally, we talked about how that desire, the reality of the steadfast love of God, which is better than life, moves us to praise him and it becomes our joy and our delight. And so now we're going to continue exploring our need and desire for God and how he becomes our delight when we are pursuing him in a relationship with him. Now last week, the focus was to see on our need for God and how that fuels our desire for him. But this week, we're going to be looking at how that need and that desire becomes our delight. And so I think the the question becomes, the question that I have for us this morning is, how do we delight in God? Well, delighting in God means delighting in who he is. And we cannot understand who he is if we aren't pursuing a relationship with him and seeing our need for him and resting in him. So we're going to tackle this question of how do we delight in God by this. We delight in God when we are pursuing a relationship with him, being steadfast in our public worship of him, and finding refuge in him. So the first thing I want us to see is that we delight in God by actively pursuing a personal relationship with him. Um, So let's start off by looking at verses 5 through 7. Read along with me. This is uh, starting in verse 5. David writes, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Verse 5 is giving us the result, the delight that we experience, but verse 6 is telling us what is leading to that delight and satisfaction. David says, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Now, remember last week, Um, We looked at verse 1, and look up there with me again as we read. Uh, We see this phrase, earnestly I seek you. And remember how some translations, like the King James Version or the New King James, uh, use the word early instead of earnestly. And we talked about how both are good translations because they convey the diligence and the eagerness of pursuing God and not slumbering or lazily lying around like a sluggard. And now I think our meaning here in verse 6 is similar to this. Except instead of seeking him at the beginning of the day or in the morning or at the dawn, we're seeking at the end of the day and David is remembering God on his bed. And we're seeing here as a parallel in the way that David is conveying the way that he is seeking and pursuing God, okay? And I don't think that this is necessarily being used just to uh, convey that we only seek him in the morning and in the evening. But rather, it's being used to illustrate that from sun up to sun down, David is contemplating and engaging God in all that he is and all that he does. And I think that we can really see this in the next phrase, verse 6, where he says, and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Now, there's some difference of opinion as to what this phrase is exactly referring to. Some commentators um, take this to mean that one's standing guard through the night, Uh, Someone who would take a shift, uh, standing guard over the camp. Um, Others take this to simply mean sleeplessness. That are a time that's usually devoted to rest. And instead of sleeping, the mind is filled with thoughts of God. Either way, the result would make for a long night where there would be many hours to meditate and contemplate his relationship with God. This is how David would occupy his time during those times of sleeplessness would draw close to God, thinking and praying, and taking joy in God's protective provision of him and his relationship with him, which would then lead him to the conclusion when he says, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. But then David is showing us the satisfaction also that is given to his soul when he he does this. Look with me again at the beginning of verse 5, and it starts out like this. Now all this is expressed in in poetic form so that the thoughts are are kind of jumbling around um, so that the artistry is preserved. But I think essentially what he's saying here is David is basically saying when he thinks and meditates on God and draws close to him, remembering how God protects and provides for him, he delights in him and his soul is satisfied. The result is satisfaction in God and praise and joy. Now David is writing about the quality of this satisfaction here in verse 5, and he compares it with something, um, and he does it with this phrase, with with fat and rich food. Um, The fat is referring to uh, the best choice part of the animal that would have the richest flavor. And this is underscoring the, the, the satisfaction that he has in his relationship with God. And it shows us the bounty and the fullness of that satisfaction. And David is expressing how the delight that is found in his relationship with God is the best that there is. And it fills him to satisfaction. Now David's delight in his relationship with God is not just meditating uh, about God in the general sense. David is not just thinking about the idea of God. And what a nice thing it is that God helps him. Uh, David meditates on specific things about who God is a specific God who's only revealed in the Holy Scriptures. Now, this psalm doesn't directly mention um, the Scriptures in that, um, but we know from other psalms that David, that he delighted in the Word of God. In fact, uh, Psalm 119 comes to mind. It is a massive psalm. It is the longest psalm uh, in the book of Psalms of the excellencies of the Word of God. And so I think it's safe to say that his meditation and his delight are specific to the things that David has read and understood and who God is, and God knows and, and he knows that that true satisfaction can only come from him, it can only come from the true God who is revealed in his word. Now, I wanted to give you a, a personal example of this, uh, something that has that 's hit me in the last couple of weeks. Um, and this is to illustrate the way that we, um, as we devote our time to him and understand who he is and how we can delight in him more. Um, currently, I'm doing some, some doctrinal studies um, in theology, and I just completed my doctrinal study and doctrinal statement in Theology Proper. Uh, and Theology Proper deals with the being of God, um, his works, and his attributes. And there are many wonderful and praiseworthy attributes of God. His love His mercy, grace, His forgiveness, His holiness, His eternity. God is triune, He is omnipotent. There are numerous things about God that are amazing. And while I was doing my study, I came across something that that really amazed me, and that is, it, it concerns two things, God's immutability and His eternity. Now God's immutability deals with the reality that God is unchanging. That's what immutable means, unchanging. And I just want to quickly read a brief passage of Scripture that deals with God's unchanging promise. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews? Just turn there real quickly. Let's leave one finger in the book of Psalms there, and just quickly turn over and find your way to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going we're gonna to read verses uh, 17 through 19. And so the author of Hebrews writes this, starting, this is, this is Hebrews 6, starting in verse 17. So when God desired, desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now this passage is basically showing us that in a world where things seem to be uncertain and always shifting and changes, that we can absolutely count on the promises of God. We can cling to them and count on them. Uh, His promises become a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls because he has promised it, and he cannot lie, and his word is truth, and he will never change. There will never be a time when his promises of eternal life in Christ will not be true. God's character will never change in all eternity. He is good and holy and infinite and wise and perfect in all things and he has promised also that all who come to him in faith in Christ will be saved and that will never change. Now on the surface I know all these things but what I really needed was some time to absorb those things and dig deeper into that and think about the implications of this. That means the promises of God that he's made are, are just as good now as they were when he first made them. And they will continue into all eternity. That means the power of God to transform my life is just as powerful now as it was when I first believed. That also means that the delight in God that we have will also never change. He will always be a delight for us. Now, the more we discover about God, the more we delight in him. And because he is eternal, we will never exhaust the amazing and wonderful things to discover about him. And as we pursue our relationship with him in all eternity, the more we will delight in him and that will continue forever and ever. Now, when I think about it, it blows my mind. It makes my heart leap for joy and give glory to God. I'm amazed and delighted, and it makes my spiritual appetite and my thirst and my hunger for him more. Now, the only reason I'm bringing this up is to illustrate that as we dive deeper into who he is, the deeper we do, the more that we are going to delight in him. Now, if I hadn't been reading about who God is and looking into his word and meditating on that, I might have never had that moment that I did a few weeks back where I was sitting on my couch in tears, just completely washed over with amazement in our God. Now, I'm not suggesting that our delight comes from just doing theological book studies on the attributes of God, although that does help. The idea is that we need to be seeking him and cultivating a relationship with him by reading his word, being in prayer, and meditating on who he is, diving deeper into him. The more you draw into him, the more you will delight in him. I think of the the, the Westminster Catechism, the way that it opens. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You were built to glorify God and delight in him. And how can we do that? By cultivating a relationship with him. Okay, we can turn back to Psalm 63 now. Uh, But we also delight in God uh, when we engage in a corporate worship of him. Look with me uh, back at verse 2. And I want to revisit uh, David's desire to worship God with his people. And I want to read read verses 2 through 4 because I believe that they form a unit. So this is Psalm 63 starting in verse 2. David again writes... So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Now, like we talked about last week, this is David having an emotional outpouring and longing to worship with God, or worship God uh, with his people. David is remembering the times and that he has gone to worship God corporately, and that is a delight for him. But we also m- m- we need to remember where David is. He's in the desert. He's in the wilderness. He's longing for that place that he wants to get back to and to worship, and he's remembering the joy and seeing God's blessing poured out on his people, and all of them delighting in who he is. And we know that David delighted in worshiping God. Listen to what he writes in Psalm 27. This is Psalm 27, verse 4. One of my favorites. He says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I love that. And one of the things that David is especially delighted in is the steadfast, unchanging, eternal love of God which David describes as better than life. Now, I know this may sound silly, but we don't want to make the mistake in thinking that somehow this means that David is any, he's longing to not exist. Um, that David isn't saying that God's steadfast love is better than if he didn't have his life at all. Um, David is simply making the point that the love of God surpasses all earthly things, including this temporal life. It is the love of God that gives new, spiritual life. Life that finds its meaning and delight in God, not in the things of this world. The, the Apostle Paul makes a similar statement in Acts twenty twenty four, When he says this, But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's life on this earth was meaningful for him only in that he was doing the work of Christ for his glory and for the glory of the gospel. Likewise, David's joy and praise of God stemmed from the glorious truth that the love of God surpasses all things in this life. And this praise manifests itself in a remarkable way. Look with me at verse 4. Um, this is a verse that has been challenging me um, through the last several weeks. Um, David is expressing his confidence that he'll continue to praise God as long as he has life in him. And again, I would like to remind us that a relationship with God is not best based on our current circumstances. We have life in him internal, and it's because of his steadfast love. And is overwhelmed with that, kind, that reality, and he knows that his delight is... Is to praise God for all eternity, as long as David has God imbued life in him. The part that has really been challenging me this week is the way that David is expressing himself in praise to God. Not only is David praising God with his lips, but also with the lifting up of his hands. Now, the background um, that I came from, raising hands, wasn't a part of the way that we worshiped for some reason. Uh, And I've been really challenged by this text because, well, I have to be true to what the text says. The Word of God is my authority and it shapes my thinking, or it should. And I have this text in front of me where David is clearly in the context of worshiping God, lifting his hands as a part of that worship. Now, if we're going to recognize that the Psalms gives us the blueprint in guiding us in our worship to God, in the way that we express ourselves to God, um, we have to see here in the text that raising hands was viewed as an appropriate way to do that. God has made us physical and spiritual beings. Our physical forms of expression are connected with our emotions. When we get excited, it gives way to physical expressions. When our team scores a touchdown, we jump in the air and we pump our fists, right? And it comes out in a physical expression. Now, if we're getting that excited about touchdowns and it's coming out in that way, there has got to be something that is moving us in a similar way when we respond to the love of God. In other words, if we're responding that excitedly about touchdowns but holding ourselves back when worshiping God Something is wrong there. And I think if we're being moved to raise our hands in adoration, and we're not, and we're resisting that because we're either self-conscious, or we have this notion that it's just not allowed, um, we may be robbing God of due praise and muting our delight in him. Now let me be clear. I'm not advocating that we start running around crazy-like, fist-pumping and high-fiving in the aisles. And I'm also not suggesting that you have to raise your hands in worship. If that is something that you don't feel moved to do, I think that's okay. But if the Holy Spirit is moving you to raise your hands in praise and delight as a response to the love of God, then you should feel free to do that. Now, I want to put myself out there with you because I've I've been resisting this uh, for a long time, probably to my own shame. Um, I've, I've felt myself resisting that, feeling that call to want to respond to God that way. And if you've been moved to raise your hand in praise and worship as a response to the love of God, and you're nervous about it, or you've been hesitant, I would like to invite you to join in with me and break that habit that we sometimes have where we let our flesh hold us back from worshiping and fully delighting in him. Because what I see here in this text, in these verses, two through four, is an echo and a preview of heaven. It is God's people coming together as a response to his call, enjoying him and delighting in him in his internal unchanging love, responding to that love with praise and lifting of hands. This day, The Lord's day should be the most delightful day of the week because it is a picture of heaven. It's as close as we're going to get to it in this life, and we should enjoy it, and we should take our delight in it. We delight in God in actively pursuing our personal relationship with him and engaging in public worship of him, but we also find our delight in God by taking our refuge in him. Now, I think uh, the challenge for us as New Covenant Christians is uh, what do we do with statements that we find in verses 9 through 11? And I would like you to uh, look with me at those right now. This is uh, verses 9 through 11. We read with me. David writes, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals. But the king... Shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And now I think the challenge is that this doesn't sound very forgiving, um, but rather harsh and almost as if there is a hint of anger and revenge to it. And you might be thinking when looking at something like this, uh, what does this have to do with our joy and our delight in having a relationship with God? I mean, here it is in the midst of a psalm that is all about joy and praise to God. And the first eight verses of the psalm are so uplifting and encouraging that we can really see ourselves entering into David's heart and rejoicing of God with him, right? But then we get here and it takes a dark turn and into something that sometimes makes us feel a little uncomfortable. Um, how do I rejoice in the destruction of my enemies uh, and them being given over as a portion to jackals, Um, So first, again, uh, we have to remember uh, the situation that that David is in. He's dealing with an insurrection led by his son Absalom. And there are factions that have been formed which are threatening to tear David's kingdom apart. And the enemies who would do David and those loyal to him harm uh, is constantly there. Uh, But we have to remember also that David isn't a fugitive here. David is the rightful God-anointed king of Israel. And he's being driven out into the desert and having the constant threat of enemies around him. And that puts things into focus. And what David is taking comfort in here, what, David's, what is David's defense, we should say, is that the justice of God will be done. That those who are involved in perpetuating this great evil against the king will face the wrath of God being given over to the power of the sword is to face the righteous judgment of God and being a portion for jackals is to signify their rejection by God. Jackals are scavengers. They live off the remains of the animals that have been rejected and left by larger, stronger animals. They are what has been discarded. So what we're seeing here is we're seeing a picture of the reality of the two factions that exist in this world. Those who are in open rebellion to the king and those who find their refuge and their delight in him. Those in open rebellion face the judgment of God and are left and rejected. And those who find their refuge and cling to him will rejoice. And we can get a contrast here of how these two factions confess. We see this in verse 11. Those who put their faith in God will confess, or they will exult. They will make their boast in the truth of God. But those who deny him and lie against the truth will be stopped. So again, how do we delight in God in all this? Well, first we all rejoice in the truth of God being proclaimed. And we rejoice knowing that God's justice will be done. We take comfort in knowing that the, the evil in this world will not escape justice. They will not escape it will not escape his watchful eye. He does not look past it, and nor is he powerless against it. Those who lie against the truth seek to rebel against his kingdom and proclaim what is evil to be good, at the same time condemning what is good to be evil, there will be a day of reckoning for that. But secondly, and most importantly, and this is where I want our hearts to really focus on, is that we were all in that first camp at one point. All of us, at one point in our lives, were in open rebellion against God. We were all under the righteous judgment of God. A lot of us here today know that at one point in our lives, we were out there in that wilderness. We were out there in that dry and weary land where there is no water, and we were dying. We know that we were in a desperate, miserable state. We were without God and without hope and that our end was to face judgment and eternal rejection. Some of you may be still there clinging on into this world. Trying to take refuge in yourself and the things of this world. Would you turn with me um, to the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 2. Um, we joke sometimes and we say that every sermon could take us to Genesis three and Romans one, and also i 'm going to add into that ephesians two and I know that we 've been in this this book uh, uh, quite a few we 've made quite a few references over this, but um, it is it is such a good understanding of this. This is Ephesians chapter two, starting in verse one. The apostle Paul writes. And you were dead in the trespasses in sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But, and there's always a but, a beautiful word here that says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, this is a reason to rejoice. Verse four here echoes in verse three of Psalm 63. That great love with which he loved us is that same steadfast love that is better than life. That same unchanging love that will last for all eternity. And this love has given us new life in Christ. Our rejoicing comes because we are taking our refuge in Christ. We take our refuge in God. He came into the world to save us from God's eternal wrath. He lived a perfect life that we could never live, that we fail to live every day. And he went willingly to the cross and took the punishment that we deserved. And when we take refuge in Christ, when we put our faith in him, trusting him to be cleansed of our sins and guilt, knowing that without him, we are dry, lifeless, and barren like the desert, When we do that, he becomes the oasis in the desert that brings us satisfaction and joy and hope and delight. Now, there might be times, maybe even recently, that you've thought to yourself, why don't I desire God like I did when I first believed? Why don't I have that fire and that glow in me like I used to? Where has my delight gone? What changed? Well, I'll tell you this for certain. It wasn't God who changed. It was one of the many glorious attributes of God that, is the, that he does not change. God is still just as glorious and amazing and delightful as when you first came to know him. His promises are just as good now as they were when you came to faith in Christ. And they will be for all eternity. So what happened? What happened? Well, perhaps you aren't seeking him with the passion like you did when you first believed. Because back then you saw your need for him so clearly. You were thirsting after him. You were hungering after him. You went after him with all of your being. Perhaps after a while you began uh, to become a little presumptuous in your relationship. You haven't been prioritizing your time in scripture or in prayer or attending your study groups like you used to. Now, that cup that Jesus offers to the Samaritan woman um, by the well, when he says, they shall never thirst again, that doesn't mean that we come to saving faith, thirsting and fainting, and then we drink once, and then never have any more need of that cup again. It means that once we drink from it, once we realize that he is our very life, and we experience the soul-satisfying salvation through Christ and that delight in him, it means that we will never go to any other place to drink again but from him. We will thirst more after him. It's a thirsting that continues. It's satisfying and fills us with joy. He becomes the source of all life for us and our need for him becomes so clear. He is the oasis in the desert. He's the only thing that sustains us in the desert. The joy and the delight that we have in God produces a thirst for him and him only. Now, some of you might be asking, why don't I desire God at all? What is this thirsting all about? I don't see it. Well, perhaps you're not seeing your need for him. Perhaps you aren't fully appreciating what is being offered. Because it's clear that if we don't see our need for Him, then we won't come to Him. And there's no way that you can understand the delight that is in Him until He rescues you from that certain death. Without Christ, we are stranded in the desert dying. We are all dead in our sins, and we do not have the power to walk out of that desert ourselves. And to ignore our need for him would be like coming upon that oasis in the desert and passing right by into certain death. Because there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves that can produce our own salvation. It is only found in him. that is you, it is my prayer that you would see your desperate need for him. That you would come to saving faith in Christ. That you would trust him through faith. That you would take that cup that he's offering you and that you you would drink deeply of it and be satisfied. Because that satisfaction and delight that awaits him is truly like nothing else this world has to offer. We need to see our need for God. We need to let that need cultivate a desire for him earnestly seeking him, not being lazy, thirsting and fainting after him. And that will lead us to delight fully in him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, what a delight it is to have a relationship with you. Lord, thank you so much that you have blessed us with uh, scriptures, that you have blessed us with Uh, your servant David, to write this wonderful psalm for us, to remind us of our need for you and the joy and the delight that we find in you. Lord, I pray that you would put into us a thirsting and a hungering, that we would come to you each and every moment of our lives, meditating upon who you are, discovering your great love for us, Lord. Lord, I pray for those, if there's any in here that are contemplating, that are, that are lost, that are, that are unsure, Lord. That you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would imbue them with life, allowing them to come and to drink deeply of that cup that Christ offers. Lord, you are gracious and mighty and wonderful, We pray, Lord, that you would just imbue these things into our hearts. That we'd never forget them. That we would teach them to our children. That we would have such delight and such joy in who you are. That we would proclaim this truth. That we would exalt. That we would make our boast in Jesus Christ. That we would tell everybody that we know of the delight and the satisfaction that can only be found in you. Lord, guide us, teach us more. Help us, because we need you, and we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.